0: Welcome to Dates with Death, the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking's new podcast series dedicated to death and all that comes with it. For a long time the topic of death has been considered as taboo in the West, even almost completely banished from our lives. This has come at a price. So we take it upon ourselves to reinaugurate the quintessential philosophical task, at least according to Cicero, namely to meditate upon death. Now, in this first date, it is my honor to be accompanied by Professor Sheldon Solomon, who is a social psychologist at Skidmore College and co-author, together with Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pizicinski, if I pronounce it well, of the highly influential book The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. Hello, Sheldon, and welcome. Mm -hmm. Well,
1: thank you, Christoph. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you for being with us. Now, I have to say that I'm really happy to share this first date with you, and this for a double reason. The first is that you are a psychologist, and although I am obviously convinced that the work of a philosopher is much more important than that of a psychologist, (laughs) I am aware that some people might disagree here. So having you, a social psychologist, talking with me about death is a very positive aspect. Secondly, you also seem to have gone further in your research than most philosophers have. In fact, not only do you believe that meditating upon death is important to do philosophy, but you state rather neatly that reflecting upon death is also important for for to improve our lives, even our daily lives. And also for this reason, it is obviously very pleasing for me that you have joined me here today. However, before uh, I would like you to answer this final question on how reflecting upon death improves one's daily life, I think it good to ask some preliminary preliminary questions first. And I would like to start by asking you the much more basic question of why death? When, why, and how did you become interested in this peculiar object of study? Ah, uh, very
1: fine question. Um I became interested. In these matters, uh, when I was a child, uh, literally, I believe I was eight or nine years old, um, when I realized that I was going to die. Um, My grandmother had died the day before, and uh, I was uh, at my house uh, reflecting and sad about that. And I was looking at my postage stamp collection and... I saw stamps of um, old American presidents, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And I was like, oh, my grandmother is dead, that's sad. And then I was like, wow, all these American presidents are dead, that's sad. But even more sad is that my mom is gonna die someday. And then all of a sudden, I realized that, uh, wow, that means that I too will someday die. Uh, and I remember vividly, just uh, literally, uh, uh, a hair-raising um, kind of existential terror that I did bury under the psychological bushes for a decade or two until 1980 when I was a a young professor uh, and accidentally discovered the work of Ernest Becker, a cultural anthropologist. And there were two books sitting right next to each other, The Birth and Death of Meaning. And and in the first paragraph of that book, uh, Becker said, I want to provide an interdisciplinary account of what makes people act the way they do and i was like yeah me too and then right next to that book christophe was a a book called the denial of death and Mm -hmm. becker won a pulitzer prize for that book in 1974 i believe and and in the first paragraph he just said that the fear of death haunts human beings like nothing else and, and that our efforts to deny or transcend death Uh, is literally the motivational impetus for a substantial proportion of human behavior. And in my gut, uh, I was like, wow, I I don't like that. Uh, But I I think it's true. It was kind of consistent with my own uh, experience. And so uh, that's how I got involved. It was a very personal disinclination to die that has been longstanding, in my case, uh, combined with being exposed to Ernest Becker's
0: ideas. Mm, Okay, thanks for this, and and we will obviously return to Ernst Becker and his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death. Uh, But I would first like to disclose, and and you maybe do comment, the difference between, uh, in this context and the difference between the philosophical interest in death, that is Cicero's meditation upon death, or Plato and Montaigne's understanding of philosophy as learning how to die, with what you, and also Becker, see as the main function of death, and, and, and which I would describe as man's fear, like you just said, or the denial of death, that is of interest. To men and to you, and it is the same fear of death that stands at the core. That is the worm of your terror management theory. Now, before we get into the terror management theory, could you maybe first say something about the difference between the philosophical and the psychological take? And then, as some might already have made the connection, how much is this psychological stance that uh, this fear and this denial of death? How is this? How much is this indebted to? psychologist Sigmund Freud.
1: Yes great questions Christoph and I would submit that uh, you answered the first one um, in your own query uh, in (laughs) terms of the distinction between uh, philosophical uh, considerations of death as opposed to um, Ernest Becker and terror management theory, um, which it was just uh, our effort to take Becker's ideas and to frame them in a fashion that would allow us to test them empirically. Uh, as you have noted, philosophers uh, since antiquity uh, have recognized that in order to live the so called good life, uh, that we need uh, a mature uh, and sustained um, consideration of and confrontation with uh, the reality of the human condition, which is that we are finite and transitory entities. Uh, and um, and what Becker, is arguing and what terror management theory provides empirical evidence for um, is that for the most part um, we are quite unconscious uh, uh, that death is on our mind um, almost uh, all the time. Uh, And uh, Becker's view uh, is that whether we're aware of it or not, and mostly we're not, Uh, we direct a substantial proportion of our psychodynamic energy uh, to avoid thinking about death Mm -hmm. explicitly. And uh, when death is on our mind, uh, we engage in a host of defensive compensatory reactions uh, that are generally devoted uh, to keep us from um, entertaining the prospect of dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, to, to get to where the, philo- where the philosophers want us to be, uh, we have to somehow uh, overcome uh, these uh, psychological processes that are instigated uh, when death is on our mind, whether we're aware of it or not. And of course, this gets us to Freud. Uh, and when you say, well, how much uh, of this stance is in debted to Freud? Well, that depends on who you ask. I'm, I'm going to go with 50% <laughs> as an <laughs> arbitrary number. Um, and here I'm adopting Becker's position, which is that uh, Freud deserves um, uh, the significant uh, acknowledgement for first and foremost uh, Uh, presenting uh, and propagating the idea of the dynamic unconscious. Uh, You know, when Freud uh, started doing his work, in some circles, psychology was defined in in terms of conscious processes. And so, the idea that there could be much happening of psychological significance that we were unaware of uh, was considered um, to be inconsequential. And so, here, Freud saying uh, uh, there is a whole lot going on that we're unaware of and, and moreover it's not only when when folks use the term dynamic unconscious it's not just to be unaware but it's also uh, that there are active inhibitory forces that keep us from becoming aware of uh, wishes or, or ideas that would render us anxious if we were to become aware of them. So that—that's uh, we owe that to Freud. We also uh, need to acknowledge that Freud very early on uh, understood uh, uh, how important concerns about death are. In general. So in 1915, um, he he wrote an essay called Thoughts for the Times on War and Death. And he said, and I'm going to read a couple of sentences. He said, Mm -hmm. is it not for us to confess that in our civilized attitude towards death, we are once more living psychologically beyond our means and must reform and give truth its due? Would it not be better to give death the place in actuality and in our thoughts which properly belongs to it and to yield a little more prominence to that unconscious attitude towards death, which we have hereto so so carefully suppressed? Uh, This hardly seems a greater achievement, but rather a backward step. But it has the merit of taking somewhat more into account the true state of affairs. So this is early Freud or mid Freud, let's say. And he's already saying, look, we're not sufficiently uh, sentient with regard to acknowledging how much concerns about death uh, influence human affairs. But then as Becker points out, and the denial of death, uh, on the other hand, He never followed through on that idea in particular himself. He had the idea of the death instinct, which Mm -hmm. suggests that we want to die. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Becker's point was that uh, that's, in fact, uh, that's a reaction formation of sorts. It's not that we want to die. We desperately don't want to die. And, in fact, in Becker's view, Freud himself uh, was uh, desperately afraid of dying, and th- mm. this is a matter of fairly public record. Mm. And so it, he actually, in the denial of death, psychoanalyzes Freud and says that Freud's own death anxiety uh, made it impossible for him uh, to completely recognize uh, the role of
0: death in life. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, D- thanks for this, and and, and, and indeed... Uh, you, you you also not just Becker but also in your book there's a there's a, there's a quite nice uh, a, a amount of, of of reference there to freud also that the moment he hears about death he faints and such so things right. so so that's 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 not really uh, hoping to die that's uh, hoping to avoid to be uh, present in that moment Now, I already already mentioned in in my previous question uh, that you and your colleagues have developed this theory that you call terror management theory. Can you say something more explicit about this theory? What does it comport in and what are its core claims? Yes,
1: certainly. So uh, what we call terror management theory, as I I mentioned a moment or two ago, um, is our effort to frame... Becker's ideas in a way that enable us to test them directly. So Becker uh, claimed he, in in a proverbial nutshell, uh, Becker said, "Look, humans are not that much different in some ways than all other forms of life." Uh, following Darwin, uh, in that we're biologically predisposed to uh, uh, want to survive, not only in the service of self-preservation, but also in terms of reproduction. Uh, but, uh, you know, as Darwin also noted, there's lots of ways to survive. You know, the giraffes got the big neck and the turtles got the hard shell and, and birds, eagles have good eyesight, and so on. Uh, And while humans have some impressive physical attributes, upright bipedalism, the opposable thumb, stereoscopic binocular vision, uh, really uh, our primary attribute with regard to why we're here and so successful is our rather large forebrain that, that gives us the capacity to think abstractly and symbolically to the point where we can imagine something that doesn't yet exist and then actually make it real. And of course, that's great news. And one aspect of our vast intelligence that Becker notes following the philosopher Kierkegaard is that we're so smart that we actually realize that we're here. And Kierkegaard's point is that we take self-awareness or self-consciousness for granted because it is our default uh, mental state. Uh, But It takes a really sophisticated cognitive apparatus to make yourself the object of your own subjective inquiry. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Becker claims following Kierkegaard that that a rosebush exists but doesn't know it. A, Mm -hmm. a, A raccoon exists but doesn't know it. We exist and we know that we're here. And in Kierkegaard's language, if you're smart enough to know that you're here, you're going to experience two uniquely human emotions that he referred to as awe and dread. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's awesome to be alive and to know it. And I always like to linger on this point just to be sure to remind myself that (laughs) uh, in our finest moments, you just wake up and you're happy to be here. Mm -hmm. and. I think we need to always uh, remember that. Mm. Uh, and yet um, it's also dreadful to be alive uh, and to know it, because if you're smart enough to recognize that you exist, uh, you're also smart enough to realize that like all living things, your life is a finite duration and you too will someday die. Mm. Uh, and Becker's point, Is that the awareness of our own mortality, which is an unintended byproduct of our vast intelligence, uh, might have been the most significant event? Uh, in the history of humankind, because Mm -hmm. it has literally altered the evolutionary trajectory uh, of our species. And it's not only the awareness that we will someday die, it's the concurrent recognition that you can die at any moment for reasons Mm -hmm. that you can't anticipate or control. You know, you can walk outside and be infected by the virus. Uh, We know uh, that uh, we can be the victims of uh, an innumerable uh, opportunities to be summarily obliterated by anything from a car accident um, uh, to, um, let's say, a malignant tumor. Uh, Moreover, Becker, just to kind of kick us in the psychological groin, points out that we don't like the fact that we're embodied animals, breathing pieces of defecating meat, no more significant or enduring uh, than lizards or potatoes. And so, what Becker says is if you were constantly aware of the reality of the human condition, I'm going to die. I can die at any time. uh, And I'm a breathing piece of defecating meat and a cold cut with an attitude that you wouldn't be able to stand up in the morning. You you would be overwhelmed with existential terror. Uh, And uh, what he proposed is that the way that human beings manage existential terror is by embracing uh, what the anthropologists call cultural worldviews, humanly constructed beliefs about reality that we share with other people in our group Uh, That reduces death anxiety by giving us a sense uh, that life has meaning Mm -hmm. and that we have value. Uh, And Mm -hmm. Becker, as an anthropologist, he pointed out all cultures have an account of the origin of the universe. They all Mm -hmm. have a prescription for how you're supposed to behave while we're here, and they all have promises of immortality, either literal in the form of the heavens and the souls and the afterlives of all the world's great religions, or symbolic immortality. You might not believe in God or heaven, but you're still fairly dedicated to the proposition that some vestige of your existence persists over time nonetheless. And the ancient Greeks were on top of this. That's why uh, we might want to have kids, why we might want to amass a great fortune or produce a great work of art uh, or science. And what uh, Becker claims is that uh, we need to believe that life has meaning. And we also need to believe that we have value. Right. Uh, and, uh, and what cultures do is they provide us with social roles. Uh, I could be a nurse and then my job would be to save lives. I I could be a goalie for a football team and my job is to keep the ball from going into the goal. I could be a soldier. My job uh, in certain instances might be to kill people. And Becker's point is that if you meet or exceed the standards associated with the role that you inhabit in the context of your culture, uh, then you believe you're a person of value in a world of meaning. And Becker calls that self-esteem, which is not to be confused or conflated with narcissism, uh, which is the opposite. Of self-esteem, mm-hmm. so Becker's point very simply is: we're so smart, we know we know that we're here. Uh, this gives rise to potentially debilitating existential anxieties that we manage uh, by embracing worldviews that give us a sense that life has meaning and that we have value. Mm-hmm. And uh, what terror management theory? hypothesizes following Becker, is that to the extent that this is true, we are motivated at all times to maintain confidence in our cultural beliefs, as well as faith that we are persons of value in the context of them.
0: Mm. Okay, thanks. Staying a little bit with Becker, if I may, I sure. think there's a there's a moment of great importance in in his book Denial of Death, and it's the moment where he makes it evident that the almost uh, anal analyticalness of modernity, it's almost exclusive. But total belief in science and its related lack of playfulness can be considered also as a cause, if I can use this word, of the terror of death and the force of this terror. It's as if that modernity has taken up this myth, no longer the cultural worldview, but this myth of health to live uh, forever. And so we have to get away with death. But obviously the grim reaper has the last word. So how would you comment then with this uh, modern uh, cultural worldview which can be called science and and it's health related uh, in 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 how could you say it uh, it's a uh, detailness or or it's, it's almost exclusive focus that is on 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 eternal health how can then this help with 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 this uh, fear of death wow um
1: though that's just a, a magnificent um observation uh, and um I think, um, well, I would go back to Nietzsche on this mm-hmm. one. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's Nietzsche, uh, it, I think it was the gay science in the 1880s where Nietzsche makes his famous proclamation, God is dead. Mm-hmm. And, and as I tell my students, you need to read uh, the rest of the paragraph and maybe even the book because Nietzsche's not being uh, cynical, Uh, He's just saying that these uh, very big religious worldviews that uh, were uh, fairly prevalent for thousands of years Uh, are no longer convincing or compelling. You know, we had the confluence of the Industrial Revolution, the theory of evolution, um, the beginning uh, of modernity and the Enlightenment, uh, and so on. And everybody thought that was great, uh, but Nietzsche didn't. He he said that, if you'll pardon the obscenity, that the psychological shit is going to hit the fan, (laughs) and it's going to take hundreds of years uh, for us to come to terms uh, with the psychological discombobulation uh, of essentially being dropped in the psychological wilderness. And mm-hmm. in another one of his books, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, um, Nietzsche says, I'll read a sentence fear, that is man's original and fundamental sensation. Everything is explained by fear. This protracted ancient fear at length grown subtle spiritual intellectual today it seems to me it is called science <laughs> and so here's Nietzsche I believe saying um that what you did Christoph just a moment ago which is that science and this is in no way to deny the virtues and no, no, no. practical <laughs> value yeah. uh, of science exactly uh, But um, it is also to make the point that Becker does and that uh, you're um, uh, asking us to ponder. uh, And that's that uh, science has taken on a quasi, if not explicitly, uh, religious function uh, Mm -hmm. for many. Uh, Mm -hmm. We we have shifted uh, our belief in God to the belief in the inevitability uh, of progress uh, vis-a-vis science. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, you know, Heidegger uh, mused on these ideas even earlier. So in Mm -hmm. the 1920s, um, Heidegger pointed out that, you know, philosophy um, kind of drifted in directions that ended up uh, with Descartes. Uh, you know, having doubted away the body uh, and the physical universe, you know, Descartes gives us this view, I think, uh, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've got ourselves as disembodied observers of a mathematically precise universe. And and Heidegger's like, look, don't get me wrong. Uh, That kind of mathematical precision is, is what enabled us to get people on the moon. (laughs) Yeah, but that could never tell us why we want to go there in the first place or what we would do uh, once we got there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, our preoccupation with science um, as uh, not so much for practical purposes, uh, but rather uh, as a substitute for traditional religions in the service of death denial, um, is most assuredly important uh, for uh, Becker's purposes. And Becker writes about how Max Weber, the German sociologist at the beginning of the 20th century, um, he saw what was happening, and again, he wasn't being glib. He's like, science, good, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also sucking the meaning uh, Mm -hmm. out of life. Weber called it disenchantment. You know, Mm -hmm. so we have the world of science uh, and uh, the world of medicine, and most of us breathing today, uh, again, we should be grateful. We might Mm -hmm. not be alive otherwise. Uh, mm-hmm. on the other hand uh, as as you noted um in modernity uh we see health uh not only as as something to strive for in general which i would submit um is uh, quite virtuous but mm-hmm. we see health as a backdoor to immortality and, mm-hmm. and and as you put it quite poignantly and profoundly Uh, The Grim Reaper has the last word, Mm -hmm. (laughs) regardless of the sophistication of our scientific methods or outcomes.
0: Yeah, although some who freeze themselves, they think I'm wrong. But that's yes, that's correct. And (laughs) not to be silly, but uh, you know, there's people
1: frozen in Arizona. Um, you know, this is the best
0: place to freeze people, I think.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So it's 120 in Phoenix, and when the electrical grid goes down a hundred years from now, if you think they're gonna to bring bags of ice to mm. keep your frozen head cool, um, I think you're seriously deluded. So uh, I, I see uh, that also being a thinly veiled effort to deny
0: death rather than a rational
1: response to it. Yeah, yeah,
0: I, I agree. Now, returning uh, once more to, to your theory, and leaving uh, Becker a, l- a little bit behind, you call your theory the terror management theory now i might give this word management a wrong meaning here but do you think that the fear of death can be managed and if so how or at least maybe not completely or you shouldn't give the a to z of how but maybe some some hints of how this can be done
1: yeah that's another fine question so um i i also uh, in a perfect universe um I, i'm I wish we hadn't used the term terror management because uh, almost 40 years ago, um, we were playfully, um, we coined the term terror management because there was another social psychological theory at the time called impression management. Mm -hmm. And the folks who proposed that theory, it was about why do we need self-esteem? Mm-hmm. and they said that we need self esteem because it helps us manage our the impressions that we make on other people mm-hmm. and our point and we were we were young and and, and silly we're <laughs> like of course we're concerned about the way that other people think about us but we saw that as a superficial description rather than an explanatory account mm-hmm. uh, we said what's ultimately at stake Uh, is uh, coming to terms with our mortality and that therefore what needs to be managed is existential terror Mm -hmm. above and beyond and prior to um, the impressions that other folks have of it. All right, Mm -hmm. be that as it may though, your question uh, remains important. Can uh, the fear of death uh, be managed? Uh, And our provisional answer is we sure hope so Uh, Mm -hmm. and um what we argue in our work based on our studies uh, and uh, in the research that we do, um, mainly, or at least one chunk of the research um, just involves reminding people uh, uh, of their own mortality. So sometimes we just in the lab, ask them to scribble down a few sentences about how they feel about themselves dying. Other times we stop people outside of the lab, either in front of a funeral parlor or a hundred meters to either side, our thought being that if you're in front of a funeral parlor, death might be on your mind, even if you don't know it. Mm -hmm. And then in other studies, we have people read things on the computer while we flash the word death for like Mm -hmm. 28 milliseconds, so fast that you don't even see it. Mm -hmm. And when, when we do that, uh, we find uh, pervasive and potent effects on uh, a whole lot of social psychological phenomenon. So when we remind people that they're going to die, they like people in their own culture more uh, and they dislike anybody who's different. Uh, mm-hmm. And they sit closer to people who look like them and further away from people who look different. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more willing to hurt or harm somebody uh, who's different. When we remind people that they're going to die, uh, they vote, uh, they're more likely to vote uh, for charismatic. Uh, and popular leaders, people who claim that they're divinely ordained uh, Mm. to rid the world of evil. So in 2004, when we reminded people they were going to die in the United States, uh, they liked then President George W. Bush more than they did otherwise. Mm. In 2016, uh, we found the same thing, uh, Mm. that Uh, When we reminded Americans that they were going to die, they liked, uh, I call him Orange Hitler, other people call him (laughs) Donald Trump, Uh, they liked him a lot more, whereas they did not care for him unless death was on their mind. Uh, When we remind people they're going to die, they don't like the fact that humans are animals. They don't like being outside in nature. Uh, They want to go shopping and watch television and eat more snacks. Um, They also become more symptomatic. Any pre-existing psychological disorder is amplified when death is on people's minds. And so um, following Becker in the, in the, at the beginning of his last book, Escape from Evil, he quotes from Thomas Hardy, the British novelist, a line, it's something along the lines of: if a way to the better there be, it comes from taking a close look at the worst. And so uh, basically, uh, if we don't uh, do something to manage uh, our terror, if we just kind of do what we naturally are inclined to, which is to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid thinking about death, uh, that, that really does not bring out the Best in us. And mm-hmm. In fact, to be glib, uh, you know, it turns us into demoralized, hateful, warmongering, proto-fascist, plundering the planet in a TV, Facebook, Twittering stupor. Uh, and um, Robert J. Lifton, the psychohistorian, he might have not been overly polemic when he said that we may be the first form of life to be responsible for our own extinction. And so, uh, and so this shifts the question. I like how um, Albert Camus put it when he said, come to terms with death. Uh, thereafter, uh, anything is possible. And this is where we get back to where we started, which is that philosophers for thousands of years uh, have been uh, thinking about, well, what can we do about it? Mm. Uh, And, uh, you know, in the old days, the Epicureans uh, and Lucretius, uh, they just said, well, you shouldn't be worried uh, about dying. It's just unrealistic. Mm. Uh, And the point they made, they're like, well, you know, you weren't here for thousands of years. And yet you're not anxious about anything that happened before you were born. And, of course, there's going to be people here thousands of years after you're not, and so why should you worry about that? Mm. And our point, and other philosophers make the same point, is that that's perfectly rational and logical, but people are neither rational nor logical all the time. Mm. In other words, that argument has done nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. to diminish people's disinclination to die. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, whatever has to happen beyond that um, will require more effort. Uh, and so you've got Kierkegaard talking about uh, how you need this leap of faith mm-hmm. um, into religion uh, and that it is only through uh, a direct connection uh, with some kind of transcendental power uh, that it is possible um, it, to come to terms with one's own mortality. Uh, but that's not the only um, the possibility. Uh, and uh, I like, uh, personally, I'm attracted to Heidegger's view of these matters. I see it as a secular uh, version of Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard talks about faith in God. Heidegger, although he doesn't use the word faith, I, I, I call it just faith in life because His view, and he he's working off of Kierkegaard's vision, um, which is that it is inevitable that all of us will experience anxiety. Uh, they called in German it's angst, which is anxiety raised mm-hmm. to the power of anxiety. It's it's it has other connotations. It's mm-hmm. more than just general worry. It has a sense of the uncanny or of mm-hmm. being unsettled or not at home, and. Heidegger, like Kierkegaard, says that uh, this is the result of our realization of the inevitability of of death. And and Heidegger's point is that that presents us with a psychological fork in the road. Uh, We either flee uh, from our anxiety and go in the direction that Becker proposes, where we take refuge in our cultural scheme of things, and we cling to our social role in the context of it. And that becomes the sole basis for deriving a sense of meaning and value. And, to be silly, but not in my language, this reduces us to culturally constructed meat puppets. (laughs) Uh, uh, Kierkegaard said that these folks are tranquilized by the trivial uh, Mm. in a frantic effort to uh, flee from death. Mm. Uh, And so, uh, and that generally doesn't end well. On the other hand, this is not the only direction, both Mm. Kierkegaard and Heidegger, talked about uh, there being a sympathetic aspect to angst or anxiety, uh, where it can serve uh, as a summons of sort. Uh, Heidegger says that angst is ourselves, summoning ourselves to find ourselves. Mm. And, and, um, and he's, he's like, wow, uh, you know, what do I mean by that? Uh, and he's like, okay, uh, anxiety, uh, it has a way Uh, of just literally kind of blasting away our culturally constructed view of the world. So uh, I realized that here I am. My name's Sheldon Solomon. I'm a psychology professor. I'm from New York in the 21st century. And sure, uh, but I could just have easily been, uh, you know, been born in Brazil uh, in the first century. uh, And I could have been uh, a goat herder or even a goat or a chimp or a pomegranate. Uh, And Heidegger's (laughs) point is that this realization is unsettling, but it can also be potentially liberating. He called it a moment of vision. Of course, it could take more than a minute. uh, and, um, And you don't necessarily know that it's happened. Mm -hmm. And and psychodynamically, his point is that uh, there's two things that uh, need to happen in this moment of vision that results in an authentic individual in possession of their own self. One is coming to terms with our mortality. Mm -hmm. And and like a lot of people, when I talk about these things, they're like, well, duh, of course I know I'm going to die. But the Heidegger point is that whenever you say that, of course, I know I'm going to die. Usually in the back of your head, you're saying I'm going to die someday at some vaguely, uh, you know, unspecified future moment. But for Heidegger, that's insufficient, because when you say that, you're kicking the psychological can down the road. Because coming to terms with death uh, is realizing that it is an ever-present possibility and that mm. I could be sitting here and a comet come through my office window <laughs> and annihilate me mm. at any time. And so if we get to the point where we can uh, think of death as an ever present possibility, then we can go on to um, see if we can resolve what the existentialists call existential guilt. And and that's not a moral transgression, uh, but rather to accept responsibility for the fact that we have to choose, uh, despite the fact that we're limited by determinative factors over which we have no control, right? Right. So I, I, I can't be a goat herder in brazil in the third century because mm. it's not the third century and i can't <laughs> give birth to children because mm. i'm a biological male mm. and yet despite those constraints uh, it is still incumbent upon me uh, to choose mm. uh, and and his point is that many of us are unwilling to accept responsibility for our choices uh, thus making us uh, guilty Uh, and Mm. the Becker quotes in the denial of death, a poet, Maria Rilke, Romanian poet, who talks about the guilt of life unlived. And I like that phrase, just Mm. that uh, we are, and Henry Miller, an author who I like a lot, he says, Mm. we're all guilty of a crime, the great crime uh, of not living life to the fullest. Mm. Well, anyway, what Heidegger says is, is if we get to that point, Uh, then good stuff happens. Uh, And Mm. on the one hand, the world doesn't look much different and you're still a historically situated cultural artifact. Uh, But, uh, and here's a whiff of Buddhism. Uh, Buddha said enlightenment is quite ordinary, Mm. but things are radically different. Uh, And Mm. Heidegger, I like some of his phrases, although I'm using English translations. he, He says, if you can get to this point Uh, You're going to be concerned about and solicitous towards others. In other words, you care about others. And, And that this helps you discover and exploit. Uh, The possibilities that are at your disposal, uh, and that as you make your way through life, he calls it anticipatory resoluteness. We're going to be looking forward to the future. Uh, We're going to be admirably purposeful and determined. And then I love the conclusion of this one. He's like, and if when you get here, uh, life seems like an adventurous journey perfused with unshakable joy. Mm-hmm. and i just think that's great because heidegger's not naive he's not mm-hmm. saying that this will rid us of anxiety or suffering mm-hmm. what he's saying is that this will counterbalance those unfortunate at times and unpleasant affectations with the awesome side of life mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree, and 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 I think you have also uh, ended with this uh, the conclusive question that I wanted to ask. How and, and it was also the first question that how uh, thinking or reflecting upon death uh, is important to improve our daily life. So I think you answered that quite well already now, Biden. So I just wanted to say thank you, Sheldon. Thanks for this highly impressive and inspiring talk and thanks for having been my first guest on My Dates with Death.
1: Well, thank you. It has been a great pleasure and uh, my um, only hope is that we get to exchange ideas again uh, and to hopefully do so uh, in slightly closer physical proximity.
0: Yeah, I could not agree more. And thank you also to our listeners for having joined us in this first episode of this new podcast series of mine. I hope you all enjoyed it and that you will soon be able to follow many more episodes. And to you, dear readers, once again, I would like to say that if you like our volunteer work here at PICT, you can now also consider supporting us by becoming an active member of our institution. So for more information about how to join PICT, please visit our website. Thank you again. My name is Christoph van and... Bye.